Welcome to Access Utah. In the early 1940s, Helmut Hubner, a Mormon teenager, decided to leave Hitler's youth and confront the Nazi regime and his church leaders. Eventually, he was excommunicated from his church and became one of the youngest opponents of the Third Reich to be executed. We'll examine the conflict of conscience occasioned by among Mormons by the extreme circumstances of Third Reich and consider the question articulated by German novelist Gunter Grass, why did Hubner know and I didn't know? Our guest for the hour will be Alan Keel, Professor Emeritus of German Studies at Brigham Young University. We'll also hear excerpts from a documentary film on the subject, Truth and Conviction. And uh, Professor Keel, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm flattered to be here. You were educated at Princeton, and you've written a book on the Hubner case. Yeah, several, actually. Um, uh, I, was, uh, I did my dissertation on a post-war German writer, and that made me kind of a specialist in post-war German works. So I began reading uh, all of the things I get my hands on, including Gunter Grass. And by the time I came back to BYU in 71, I had gotten to a novel called uh, Local Anesthetic, which had been published just two years before. I was just a couple of years behind by that time. And in this novel, I encountered, to my surprise, this young Mormon figure, uh, Helmut Hubner. And as a Mormon myself, I thought, oh, gosh, how come I don't know about this? And so I uh, did a little research and, and, and found the original article that had appeared in a small newspaper that Gross had found, which gave me the names of some of the co-conspirators. And uh, I was sitting in my office one day, and the snowflakes were falling outside like a Grimm's fairy tale. And and uh, I suddenly thought, I wonder if any of these people emigrated. So I grabbed the Salt Lake phone book, and lo and behold, they had all emigrated for all practical purposes. So uh, I sort of abandoned my role as German literary scholar for a few days, and I thought it would be a few days. It actually has kind of dogged me my whole career. And we began to call people up. I called up Carl Schnibbe, and he said to me, I've been waiting 25 years for this call. And he was very happy to tell, tell me his story and also his his friend Rudy Vobbe. And as we go along, we'll find that the, these are two uh, companions of, of Hubner's in, in this. Uh, That's right. What came to be known as the Hubner Group. Let's uh, set the scene, and then we'll hear a, a clip. We're going to be hearing clips from this uh, this documentary film, uh, Truth and Conviction. Uh, so the rise of Hitler, and of course, we, we're seeing this in, in hindsight. But uh, it, So it's kind of hard for us to see, but there there was there was an attraction to, to Hitler to, for, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we have to remember that, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to sound like I'm an advocate of Hitler, but you, you know, he put people back to work. There was enormous unemployment in Germany after World War One, after the, the embarrassment of the Treaty of Versailles, uh, uh, huge inflation, hyperinflation. Uh, of course, people didn't always ask for the backstory. They didn't care if they got a job somewhere, if this was in the armaments industry, or if Hitler was building the autobahn so that he could have his tanks move back and forth more rapidly, and so forth. Uh, I think H.L. Mencken said it's very hard for a man to understand something if his income depends on his not understanding it. But there were enthusiasts for Hitler uh, in Utah and in Great Britain, uh, among the Mormons as well. There was an article or an unsigned editorial in the Millennial Star, which is the uh, LDS Church's official organ in Great Britain, that enthused about Hitler. You know, early on, the man's putting people back to work. He's cleaning up all that nasty graffiti and all those a social elements. He's got those guys off the streets, you know, and sort of the roaring 20s were pretty rough in, in Berlin, if you watch Cabaret or some of those documents of the time. So there were a lot of people who thought this is a, this is a good thing. And among the Mormons, there was also kind of a strange urban folklore that grew up that, that Hitler had, in fact, visited the Mormon branch when he was a young man living there in Braunau um, Inn, where he was born. And some of the folklore even went so far as to say that he joined the church he was a teetotaler, and he didn't smoke tobacco, so they thought, uh-huh, you see, that fits. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting, that even the fact that the Mormons could not get access to genealogical archives uh, before Hitler, because they were obviously controlled by the Catholic and Protestant churches, respectively. But after Hitler, they were able to allow free access to the genealogy archives, and they thought, well, this is great. Of course, they didn't see the bigger picture, which was that the Germans had insisted that Church archives be now open because people needed to research whether their Jewish grandmother was uh, half Aryan or whatever. It was a it was a nasty kind of mm-hmm. ugly reason. But uh, you know, if you were a genealogy researcher and you didn't ask the the bigger question, you thought, no, this is great. You know, this Hitler guy, he's okay. So there was a big reason why there was a lot of enthusiasm for Hitler, not only in Germany but in in part outside. 
And but as as time went on and, <clears throat> and some of these things became more clear, there was some opposition. There's there there are some opposition groups that uh, that uh, grew up. Uh, let's hear a, a bit from the uh, from the movie Truth and Fiction. This is directed by uh, Matt Whitaker. Early in Hitler's regime, there was some opposition among the working class, but soon they too were either supportive or silent. It was sort of making a pact with the devil, but not knowing where, that it was the devil that you made the pact with and where that would end up. As the Nazi police state tightened its grip, there was a struggling underground movement, but relatively few organized resistance groups. In 1942, the White Rose Group, led by college students Hans and Sophie Scholl, disseminated anti-Nazi leaflets. In 1944, Klaus von Stauffenberg and other military leaders made an unsuccessful attempt to assassinate Hitler in an ill-fated bombing. But before these movements had emerged, there was another resistance group forming in the port city of Hamburg. In 1941, a young man named Helmut Hubiner led a resistance movement comprised of himself and two childhood friends from his church congregation. Helmut Hubiner was 16, Rudolf Wabe was 15, and Karl Heinz Schnibbe was 17. Karl Heinz is the last surviving member of the group. Most people, they have, they have no idea how it was in, in Nazi Germany, how dangerous it was in Nazi Germany. To tell the truth was a deadly luxury. My friend Helmut thought that was his Christian obligation to warn the people and tell them what happens. That at the end is the voice of uh, of Carl Schnibbe. Very That's powerful Carl. to hear his, hear his voice. Yeah. He has since died. He has passed away about three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so these were teenagers yes. in, in in Hamburg. Uh, understand that uh, Kristallnacht really uh, was formative in in uh, I guess turning it, it was, Hubner against know, the regime. It, he he had been a member of the the Nazi youth, right? Hitler's youth. Uh, yes, and, and of course most people were, but he was also a, a fairly converted, you know, uh, enthusiastic Nazi. We have a school essay of his called The, the, the War of the Plutocrats, and this was a, a typical kind of uh, attack on these U.S. Jewish capitalist Wall Street um, plutocrats who had started this war. But that changed uh, diametrically when, uh, uh, well, so certain events uh, Crystal Night, or the Night of Broken Glass, in uh, November of '38, was certainly one. Carl Schnibbe tells us about how he, shocked he was to see the synagogues in flames and uh, Jewish shops broken. And and um, but there were things that happened within the LDS branch that Helmut be- belonged to, and Carl and Rudy. Um, the uh, the branch president was uh, a a uh, an absolutely 100% enthusiastic Nazi. But you shouldn't be surprised. I mean, this was Nazi Germany, so there were a few Nazis in Nazi Germany. Uh, I keep trying to make that point to my students at BYU. They were always horrified and shocked at this fact. I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just saying it, it happened. And I think uh, some of the behavior of this guy, he, for instance, brought a radio in uh, on, on Sunday and tried to lock the doors and said, we're going to listen to the Fuhrer's speeches now. He had a counselor named Otto Berndt who said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. This is not a political organization. This is a church of God. So we're not actually clear whether he actually did that or, or he did it once and, and Barrett wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate it any longer, but it, he tried to do that, and that was offensive. He also put a sign up on the branch, and this was apparently very uh, completely unique in Germany. Nobody, no, no other branch presidents did this, uh, saying Jews are forbidden to enter. This was aimed at one particular member of the branch, a young man named Solomon Schwartz, who at any rate had a Jewish-sounding name, Solomon, and he looked kind of Jewish according to the cliches of the time. Um, no one was actually sure who his father was because his mother had been the victim of a of a rape when she was a civilian war prisoner and had been in World War One had been transported over to Romania to Transylvania, which is a German speaking part of Romania, and had been raped by someone there who she thought was a Jew. The baby was born. She named him Solomon. Took, took him to Hamburg, and it was against this, this 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 sign seemed to have been put up there to keep Solomon out of the branch. Um, he was later denounced by someone and sent to Auschwitz where he died. His sister, whom I interviewed in Hamburg many years later, was convinced that the branch president, Artur Sander, had also denounced his, her brother. And I was always astonished that though she had lived with this terrible wound in her soul for all those years, that she had remained a faithful Latter-day Saint. Hmm. 
I think if my bishop denounced my brother to the Gestapo, I think I would have a tough time going back to church. But she proved her faithfulness. But these, this was the atmosphere. Uh, a woman, a sister in the branch, came in one day carrying a leaflet that had been dropped from a British plane, a propaganda leaflet. And Sander ripped that out of her hand and said that he was going to send her to a concentration camp if she ever did that again. Helmut witnessed this kind of thing. I think that tipping point may have come with a an older gentleman in the ward there, or the, in the branch there, whose name was Heinrich Vops. He was walking across a plaza there in Hamburg one day when some statue was being unveiled. And I wasn't cautious and said audibly, and someone heard him say this, oh, they're unveiling another statue to another um, Nazi butcher. And it was taken to a concentration camp in Gama near, near Hamburg, put in, put in stocks outside in the wintertime. His hands were... Uh, uh, freeze, uh, water was dripped on his hands and, and big gloves, big mittens of ice formed on his hands. And then the uh, SS guard would come by with a rubber truncheon and, and knock the ice off his hands and say, and would tell him, this will keep your hands warm. So he was tortured and, and, and almost almost killed in this camp. And, and finally when he was released, about a year later, he was a broken man. He came back to the branch and refused to talk about it. But Helmut um, wouldn't let him go, and he just pestered him until Heinrich Fort finally broke down and told Helmut this story. So, at the conclusion of these kinds of you know events, uh, it's it's really no wonder that Helmut had became a uh, an, an absolutely determined anti-fascist. But the thing I guess that really made it possible for him was that the uh, accidental fact that his uh, half brother, older half brother had been in occupied France as part of the German uh, work uh, service that brought back a radio. And I think uh, since we're on public radio now, one of my favorite things in the world, this is important that the radio plays a big, really important role in this whole story. The German radios at the time were kept purposely primitive. It was called the Volksempfänger, by analogy to the Volkswagen. You know, this is the people's receiver. Um, And that was the people's car. And it could only get the German stations. Uh, but this little radio that he brought back from France, it was the, the, the brand was Rola, R-O-L-A, and it had a shortwave band. And uh, the brother locked it in a cabinet at his grandparents' house where he lived, and then Helmut went into that room later when the, his brother was inducted. And he, opened the, he broke open the cabinet, um, and he apparently replaced one or two tubes that were working in this radio, and he turned it on, and he heard boom, 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 which was, of course, the first... Uh, notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but it was also the short, 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 long of the Morse code for V, the letter V for victory, which was Churchill's, you know, you imagine Churchill holding his fingers up in a V shape. So this was the BBC London. And now Helmut really was uh, a, a confirmed anti-fascist because the, the news from the BBC London was, was accurate. He could tell instantly that it was accurate because it was detailed, and it was also fair in the sense that uh, uh, the BBC uh, would, would, would honestly tell the, the world that we had big casualties today, too. You know, there was a battle here and, here and there, and the British side lost so many people, and the Germans, we think, lost so many people, but it was kind of a... Or, or the, they may have even reported things like, you know, we, we, we were defeated today. The Germans beat us, you know. This, whereas the German news was all, all sort of... Um, Raw, uh, raw, and we beat. Every, you know, nobody died on the German side, and we everywhere we go is kind of like some someone listening to Kim Jong Un right now. You know, it's hard, 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 hard to believe that that was true. So this, I think, was the background of Helmut's uh, ability. Plus, he had the uh, he had learned shorthand, so he was able to take down notes from these broadcasts. Also, the branch president Sonder had entrusted him with a branch typewriter or a Remington. We even know the ser- serial number of this thing. He'd taken it home to write letters to soldiers on the front at the front from the branch, because this guy Sander, I have to say, was a really terrific branch president. Given the fact that his political views were were uh, extreme right wing views, uh, he did a great job uh, taking care of the lambs and sheep in his fold. And uh, he told Helmut, uh, who was his sort of secretary, uh, write these letters every week to these people in the front. Which Helmut was doing, but he'd used that. He then used that typewriter to, using carbon paper, to pre- prepare leaflets. At first, they were little postcard-sized things, but then they became um, what the Germans called 
DIN, uh, see what, I've forgotten this, it's about the equivalent of eight, eight and a half by 11. It's a little longer and a little narrower, but it's about that size. So they're full size sheets of paper. And they're pretty much without margins. It's so pretty much wall-to-wall print. Uh, and they're very brilliantly written. Um, he writes a long doggerel poem in one of them about how Joseph Goebbels is lying when he tells you things over the radio. Uh, he quotes uh, uh, Frederick Schiller's uh, Wilhelm Tell in one point. He's, he's kind of showing off a little bit, too. He quotes Hamlet. Uh, but these things are uh, quite prescient. When you read them now, you think, wow. And, of course, he was saying things that the BBC was saying. But uh, this, was, uh, this was a time when Hitler was, was really very successful. Everywhere he went, he was, you know, he, there were no, no setbacks, really. They were, um, he'd invaded Poland in a few weeks. That was, de- you know, he invaded Denmark. He was in France. He'd now invaded Russia. In fact, it was interesting that just a couple of weeks after Helmut's trial in August of 42, that uh, the Battle of Stalingrad began. And it wasn't until the Battle of Stalingrad was un- had been underway for a while that it became obvious to everybody that the war had turned and that Hitler was doomed. But before that, it was pretty clear that Hitler was doing, you know, he was succeeding in everything he undertook. So uh, Hubner really was going against the grain here, but he did have the BBC at his back. We're going to uh, talk more about Helmut Hubner and uh, get into exactly what he did. He distributed these leaflets. He recruited a couple of other uh, young men. These are teenagers in uh, Nazi Germany uh, going up up against a very cruel regime. And we'll, we'll get into their fate and uh, ask the question articulated by German novelist Gunter Grass, a key question, why did Hubner know and I didn't. We're talking with uh, Alan Kiel, who is a professor emeritus at Brigham Young University, and uh, we're hearing excerpts from a documentary film on the subject called Truth and Conviction. We're uh, treating the case of Helmut Hübner in the early 1940s. He decided to leave Hitler's youth and confront the Nazi regime and his church leaders. Eventually he was excommunicated from his church, became one of the youngest opponents of the Third Reich to be executed. In this film, we'll be hearing more clips from uh, one of his, the members of his group who was a teenager at the time as well. That's uh, Karl Schnibbe. Very powerful to hear his, his voice. Uh, more following the break. L-O-L. What happens? Let's do... When technology starts to change our language. Lol, let's do this interview via text. Lol. <laughs> it would take us like forever to do this by text. Oh, lol. I'm Guy Raz. Spoken and unspoken. Stories from the frontiers of human communication. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Alan Kiel, Professor Emeritus of German Studies at Brigham Young University, treating the case of Helmut Hubner in the early 1940s. Hubner was a Mormon teenager when he decided to confront the Nazi regime. And he was in a Mormon branch, headed up by a very committed Nazi. And so there's a conflict within the branch. This is illustrative, I'm sure, uh, Professor Kiel of, uh, of you know the other churches, other religious people. Let's hear another clip from the film. This sort of sets up this crisis of conscience. Or, or should we be loyal to the, the government officials? Should we be loyal to God? Where, where does our conscience fit? Did Helmut ever think about getting caught and what would that mean uh, towards the neighbors and, and, and towards the other members of the church? I don't know. The church family was truly a family as far as the Nazis were concerned. And they had something which they called Zippenhaft. And it meant that if, if you have some member of your family who is going against the law, that, that they can arrest your whole family. In this oppressive climate, religions throughout Germany struggled to find the balance in supporting the Nazi government while upholding their Christian values. Again and again, they were faced with the question, can we be loyal to Hitler and at the same time loyal to God? Though the answer to this question varied within the different denominations, everyone knew the ominous consequences of religious objection to the regime. So the complexity that is found in every Mormon branch is largely a reflection of this delicate balancing act of being good citizens while at the same time doing all we can personally 
to bring about the God-given human rights that belong to all people. And so for, for Helmut, the issue was, am I not uh, uh, raised to tell the truth and to, to pass on the truth? And uh, uh, so I think this became a, a, a very important issue for him, to, to tell people what was really happening, what he knew. So this, uh, there's a conflict, obviously, within this branch. The branch president is a very committed Nazi, a, a true believer, yeah. it sounds like. Um, Helbert Humber, this was he 15 years old, 16? Uh, he was 16 when this uh, kind of broke loose, but he was 17 at the time of his arrest because they, they went on about a year without, without interference. So what, what were his motivations? Well, you know, uh, this question of, of the uh, uh, choice between loyalty to the state and loyalty to the church and so forth or, and to God are, is, is really an important one. And I think, I think it's undeniable that Helmut was, uh, as a young Mormon kid, influenced by the analogy of the LDS missionaries handing out tracts, you know, and, and telling people that they were uh, here to proclaim the truth to them and so forth. Uh, there is a thing in, in LDS uh, church uh, uh, doctrine called the Twelfth Article of Faith, which is uh, something that Joseph Smith wrote. It's a very brief statement, and it says that uh, we believe in being subject to kings, magistrates, and and others, and and to, in obeying and sustaining the law. Joseph Smith was at pains to tell the world that we were not anarchists, that we were not, you know, survivalists who uh, holed up in caves and and thought the government was our enemy. Although it seems that some of us have gone that direction now that Joseph was gone. And there are other LDS uh, scriptures that deal with this in a little more detail in the Doctrine and Covenants, for instance, section 98, section 134. Um, but it seemed to some of the branch members that this was a, a simple thing. You know, you were, you're, it doesn't say we, we believe in being subject to dictators and, and homicidal maniacs, but uh, it, they didn't know that at the time, I guess. So it seemed to a lot of them that, they, that Hubner had, uh, had broken the 12th article of faith, although I'm not sure one can break a tw- an article of faith, but never mind. And they were also concerned that he had put them in danger, as my colleague Doug Tobler in the, latest, in the last clip said. Um, this, the action of these young boys could have re- resulted, could hypothetically have resulted in the annihilation of all the Mormons in Germany at that time. That was not beyond the pale. Luckily, it didn't come to that. Uh, when the uh, investigators from the Gestapo, the secret state police, came to church and, you know, their plainclothes spies came into the ward after that, well, what did they find? They found people denouncing Hubner for having gone against the 12th article of faith, this stupid kid. I hear this today from older Germans to, who have not changed their minds about this. Carl um, uh, Heinz Schnibbe's sister uh, uh, to his death, wouldn't speak to him because he'd put them in danger. You know, she she belonged to that school, and they saw the Nazi guy up front with his um, golden party pin and his suit that had a, uh, a fabric that was made with little swastikas in it. So and they and one guy stood up in priesthood meeting and said, "If I'd known he was going against the Fuhrer, I'd have got my gun and killed him." I'm giving him the Southern accent to try to sort of imply that he was a hick, but. It, who knows what he was? He, his name was Jacobi. I don't know the man, but you know, have someone stand up in church and say I, w- I would have shot him myself is is pretty radical. So the, the Gestapo people said to themselves, "Well, okay, there's no problem here." However, they did think that there was an adult behind him, behind this group. They couldn't believe that he'd written those things himself. So they suspected this guy Otto Bernd, you know, who was, you know, I think every LDS ward to this day has this has, you know, some suspected liberal. <laughs> and uh, so they r- rounded him up and arrested him and, and, and interrogated him for three days. And uh, Otto Bernd reports that he just kind of turned this thing over to the Lord and, and just answered these machine gun fire f- f- rapid questions as best he could. And, and they tried to trip him up, of course, but, but he was honest and, and he was sincere. He really didn't know anything about this. And so after three days, they let him go. And as they were walking him to the door, they, he said to them, well, I, I, I hope you understand that I didn't have anything to do with this. And they said, listen, Baron, if we had the slightest doubt about this, you wouldn't be going out of this place alive. But make the, no mistake, they said, when we have this war behind us and we've eliminated all the Jews, you Mormons are next. There's no room in New Germany, in New Hitler Germany, for some American sect like yours. So mm. there was never any doubt in the, in the highest echelons of the Hitler regime that that they were that they would let this you know this sect go and so 
the Mormons, as the bombing raids increased and as it became obvious that Hitler was going to lose the war, they began thinking, you know, this is a good thing. It's a good thing we're going to lose this war because our faith in this guy was really ill-placed. And uh, let's pray that Hitler doesn't win the war because of the consequences that they could see. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the arrest. This was occasioned by, um, by Helmut Hubner trying to recruit another fellow who didn't, yeah. didn't accept this, and, and that leads to, to their arrest. Yeah, he had actually recruited another young guy who was at, at his workplace who was not a Mormon, a young man named Gerhard Duver, who then got arrested with them all and spent the whole prison and uh, uh, they, had, they had remarkable adventures in, in these labor camps. They were in one labor camp in Poland in January of 45. They had to walk throughout, through, through across Poland and out of Germany on foot when the Russian armies approached. And we have a diary that this Gerhard Duver wrote. He kept a day-by-day diary of this horrible trek through waist-deep snow in terrible conditions. Uh, so we really can't forget to mention Gerhard Duver, but the reason they got arrested was because Helmut got a little more emboldened and tried to recruit yet one more person at his work, a young boy named Werner Kranz. And uh, he was observed trying to hand him a, a leaflet, and Kranz blew the whistle, and uh, he was arrested. Uh, he said, I was always scared. Yeah. I was always scared, and yet he did it. Yeah, he was. He was, he was older, also a little older than the others, and, I, you know, the— it's a universal law, I think, that teenagers don't think anything bad can happen to them. But the older they get, the more they – I think it has to do with the completion of the development of the frontal lobes or something in the brain. But uh, Carl, being a little older, was always also the one who was a little more frightened about the consequences about it. At least that's how he said it, how he claimed it to be. Nevertheless, he went ahead with it because he, he too became uh, convinced that the uh, that the BBC broadcasts were, were correct and that the um, – Broadcasts uh, that they, you know, the, the whole propaganda or, uh, mechanism of the Third Reich was one gigantic lie. And at, at some point, uh, the, uh, these graphs crossed, these lines on the graph crossed, and his, his desire to tell the truth became greater than his fear of, uh, of, the, of the possible consequences. Uh, they did t- sort of have a pact. They said, look, if any one of us gets caught, then he'll deny that the other, you know, he won't say anything about the others. And it appears that Hubner uh, kept his side of the bargain for a, quite a while, but when you read the uh, transcripts of this, and, and by the way, this is one of the best documented uh, things. We, we were astonished to find out how uh, detailed, such what detailed documentation was still available. Uh, our, my colleague Douglas Tobler, whom one hears on the film, uh, a, a German historian at BYU, uh, had gone to Germany on a sabbatical, and he came back from a visit to the American Document Center in Berlin with this enormous uh, four-inch thick pile of, of, of documents. So we have transcripts of the interrogations. And we know that a lot of the things are euphemisms, like interrogation, you know. So it'll say things like, after uh, a very strong reminis- or, uh, remonstrations, you know, things like, after we beat the heck out of this kid, he finally said, well, yes, Carl Schnibbe did come over one night, and we sort of tried to listen, but we couldn't get the, you know, it was... It was being jammed that night or something. So he, he tried to make his friends look as innocent as possible. But eventually they kind of, uh, Gestapo smelled a rat and they arrested both of them. And to a certain extent, Rudy admitted more. But Carl always held back. And, and for instance, he never took a, a, a leaflet home. If he wasn't able to dispose of it, put it in a brief or in a, uh, a letter box or hang it up on a bullet board or something, he, he would burn the thing. He kept a package of matches with it. And consequently, when the Gestapo searched his house, they found nothing. So all in all, it resulted in, in Carl getting a five-year sentence. Rudy got a 10-year sentence because he did admit a little bit more. Now, ironically, this stood Rudy in good stead when at the end of the war, they came through the camp and looked around and said, okay, we need soldiers. Schnebe, you've, you've served the majority of your five years, so you're in the army now. Volby, you stay here because you haven't served anything like the first half of your thing. And a couple weeks later, the British liberated Rudy. But Carl was, quote, unquote, liberated by the Russians, and he, he got to serve another four years in uh, prisoner of war labor camps in, along the Volga. But uh, there was a lot of fear, but there was a lot of boldness, too. And, but I think the boldness was driven not just by sheer teenage stupidity, though I'm sure that was a, a factor, but by the, 
the insight that the uh, that the Nazis were really, really, really perpetrating a huge obscenity, and and uh, on, on the people, and uh, this had to be somehow countered. Would, maybe we can address right here uh, this very important question that uh, Gunter Grass uh, asks. Yeah. Uh, he paraphrasing just slightly. He said, "How did Hubner know? Yeah, how did he know that? And I didn't know. Right. And you could you could add that uh, you know Schnibba and and Boba as well. Right. That, yeah. How did they know? And I didn't know. Yeah. Well, they knew because Hubner knew. Frankly, they 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 will always admit right up front. They would volunteer that look, we didn't. We were so dumb compared to Hubner. They said he was so smart and he knew this stuff and he he brought us along. But Gross's point is well taken. I have to say. Um, to Grass that, he, you know, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1999. He's a great writer. I mean, he's, he's a troublesome guy. He, he always he's, he divides people. and People either hate him or love him. But uh, um, it turned out that just a few years ago, he shocked Germany by admitting that as a 17-year-old, he himself had been a member of the SS. This is something he'd kept quiet for years, for all those years. And so this question that he asks in the film, we interview him for the film, uh, took on even more significance when it was revealed, when he revealed uh, that he'd been in the SS. Now, let me hasten to say that he didn't join the SS. Uh, he was a member of what's called the Waffen-SS. This was an armed, uh, well, all the SS were armed, but it was a military uh, uh, unit, really, that was that happened to be SS. And they put people, young kids in there at, at age 17 and put him in a tank, and he, and he was captured by the Americans. But uh, the point is that he... He says, this has gnawed on me for my whole life. How come Helmut knew this, and how come I didn't know this? Well, the answer was he didn't have the BBC radio, and he didn't have, uh, you know, things had not lined up in, in a way. Maybe if he'd been there in the ward and had talked to Heinrich Vorps, things would have been better for him. But Gross was one of those many people who, who bought into this story and uh, was a true believer, you know, to the end. Of course, he was, when he was captured at age 17, he was also wounded somewhat put in an American re-education camp, and there he was, you know, and, they, and he, he sort of indicates in his writings that, that the American re-educators had to kind of beat him over the head, because he was a stubborn, mulish uh, knothead. And, uh, but when he became, a, uh, you know, when he was, when he was then con- converted to liberalism, to, to progressive, you know, social democracy after the war, then he became a, uh, a fiery advocate for that. He, was, uh, he worked closely with Chancellor Willy Brandt. Um, he went maybe a little too far. Some of the social democrats had to sort of rein him in a little bit, but he was he was tireless in uh, denouncing people who had been in the SS. He even denounced uh, Ronald Reagan for going to a German military or to, to a, a, a cemetery where some Americans were buried because also some SS people had been buried there. So when he revealed that he'd been in the SS, you know, he was renounced in some quarters as this huge hypocrite. But Gross is a very consistent uh, and, and moral thinker, but. It's clear that Hubner had a terrific impact on him. And I, I actually privately think that he eventually decided to confess his uh, uh, early uh, you know, membership in the SS, if you can call it that, because of this thing with Hubner. You know, Hubner, would have, Hubner would have opened up, you know, he, he thought to himself, I, I really believe that, and I know Gross quite well, so I think I can say that. I can't prove that to anybody, but uh, he, was, he was troubled by the fact that he did not know that. Uh, this seems like a, a, a complete change of topic, but if you jump ahead to the fall of ni- 89, when in East Germany the wall came down, there were, um, this, this happened in Leipzig. It was so interesting how this happened in the fall of, of uh, uh, 89. People started meeting at a certain church in the middle of Leipzig, and they would then go out after the meeting, a, a brief uh, sermon in the church, and they would go out with candles in their hands. And... Uh, Hold, hold both hands around the candle so it didn't go out, so nobody was throwing rocks. The East Germans were hoping, of course, that the, the, somebody would throw a rock through a window so that they could come in and arrest everybody, but they, would, they didn't. And this thing swelled. It was like 1,200 and then 1,500, and pretty soon it was 30,000 and 70,000. And finally, in, the, in just about eight weeks' time, it grew to 500,000 people every Monday night. It was brilliantly chosen because they would go right. Uh, the stores were closed. That is to say, businesses, offices were closed. And people were on their way home. But the stores were still open, so there were still people on the street. There was plenty of reason to allow people to be on the street. And it was Monday night, and that's when the Communist uh, Party had its obligatory uh, sort of staff meetings. So the Communists were gone doing their staff meeting. 
And on Monday night, there's 500,000 people in Leipzig alone. And, of course, there were others in other cities. East Germany only had like 16 million people. So, I don't know, a quarter of the population, a third of the population on any given Monday night was out on the streets protesting. And they were chanting things like, no violence, keine Gewalt. And uh, what, could the, what could the government do? It just finally had to open the, it opened the wall. Uh, you, can't, you can't shoot the entire population of your own country even if you... Uh, wanted to because uh, the, the army would refuse to shoot, which they did in this case. So my point is that even though Helmut wasn't successful in his time you know, in overthrowing the regime, he didn't know how many others might join him. And the Nazis were just as concerned that this would catch on as Helmut was hopeful that it would catch on. They were much more concerned about some guy with a typewriter than some guy with a machine gun. They said, machine gun, we find that all the time. We got lots more machine guns than they do. But typewriters, that scares the heck out of them because they knew that their whole thing was a, was a house of cards and that the slightest wind of truth could blow it down. Now, it didn't happen then, but I submit that it happened in 89 and that the Germans had learned this important lesson that you, you, you've got to go out on the streets. You've, you've got to put your life on the line and you've got to say, hey, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And that happened. And uh, um, I, I'm well, you, you, all, all you have to also do is look at the German voting rate. Uh, they average around 90% at, at, at all kinds of elections, national elections particularly. And our average in the United States, I'll look this up again recently, is, is somewhat under 50%. You know, and that's in presidential elections, and in smaller elections it's even lower than that. So Germans have learned their lesson. Boy, you can make a political mistake. And 12 years later, you wake up and your country's a smoking ruin and your kids are going to have to apologize for this for a thousand years. We're talking with Alan Keel. He's Professor Emeritus at Brigham Young University. I've been telling the story of a Mormon teenager who decided to confront the Nazi regime along with two friends, uh, distributed leaflets. Their hope, as the professor just said, was to uh, disseminate the truth and that that, that would uh, ignite a grassroots movement. And... Uh, Helmut Hubner became one of the youngest opponents of the Third Reich to be executed. Uh, his two friends uh, spent time in a prison camp and, and uh, immigrated to the United States later. We'll continue at following the break. The following, is an encore. the following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. We're back with Alan Keel. He is Professor Emeritus of German Studies at Brigham Young University. He gave a talk on the USU campus recently called Mormons and Nazis, the case of Helmut Hubner. And that is part of the, or was a part of the uh, symposium series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. Helmut Hubner, a Mormon teenager, decided in the 1940s to confront the Nazi regime. He eventually became one of the youngest opponents of the Third Reich to be executed. Uh, this... Uh, occasioned uh, a uh, crisis of, of conscience among, or illustrated a crisis of conscience among many people, religious people. Do we serve the regime? Do we, uh, do we serve God? And there was a division among the LDS branch there in Hamburg. Um, and we're talking with uh, Alan Keel, just a, a few minutes left in, in the conversation. Let's treat this, this very important question, kind of a corollary of Gunter Grass's question. Why did Huber yeah. know and I didn't know? In, in years following the war, the older generation... You know, let's just let this lie. We don't want to know much. The younger generation was curious, wanted to know. You're saying German people did learn some very important lessons from this, which came to fruition in 1989 with the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall. But uh, I'm sure there were people who suspected, uh, you know, it dawned on them that, uh, you know, th this is this is a house of cards, as you put it uh, yeah. earlier, and, yeah. and it's evil. But yeah. uh, the Nazi regime was worried about a grassroots movement, and, and, and the repression was brutal. That's exactly right. And so many people, because of fear, would not act. Why did Hubner act, do you think, and others didn't? Yeah. Well, th you're absolutely right. This is, uh, uh, as, as time went on, though, this is not a snapshot, but it's a moving picture. And as time went on, as the bombs fell in Germany and as, as Hitler began to, to lose, and, uh, and the people could see this was gonna, not going to have a good outcome, 
their you know faith in the Fuhrer and all that stuff began to crumble. But uh, within the Mormon community, and I like that because it's a microcosm. You can you can you can slice it and dice it and look at it a little more carefully. Um, I would say that it was it represented the, the macrocosm. There were people on on both extremes. You know, there were fanatical Nazis on one end, and I don't think there were any more among the Mormons than there were among the general population, as a percent. But there were also you know Helmut Hübner. So we have at least one. Thank goodness. Uh, I, I want to say something uh, just briefly about this this so-called excommunication. He was excommunicated, but but only by this uh, one branch president, who however however did get the. Uh, Support of a of a fellow Mormon and a Nazi named Anton Hook, who at that time was a counselor in the mission presidency after all the American missionaries had left. Uh, so he and Anton Hook excommunicated Hubner. But I think it's very important to notice that right immediately after the war, when a Swiss citizen Mormon named Max Zimmer got in and found out what had happened, and he communicated that to the first presidency of the Mormon Church that they added a notation to his permanent membership record that says uh, excommunication done by mistake, hmm. uh, reinstatement ordered by the or, by the First Presidency on this and this date. I've seen that uh, uh, document with my own eyes, and it's, it's, you know, it's impressive. So uh, I, I know some anti-Mormons who've used this uh, against the church who said, you know, huh, so the Nazis killed him, but then the Mormons excommunicated him. Well, no, one Mormon branch president excommunicated him. I think the church... Uh, Church as a whole would never have excommunicated him, but it does it does show this problem. Um, there were people, of course, who 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 began to see that that Hitler was a a real evil. But then at that point, the question is, what can you do? You know, uh, ironically, uh, our uh, unlimited air war against Germany, uh, though it was intended to shorten the war, may have actually prolonged the war because it it, it kept people so occupied with survival. That there was really not much they could do to to do anything. They were they were running to air raid shelters and and just trying to keep you know their their body and soul together. And uh, it it tends to disrupt uh, life. Yes, uh, it did it disrupt the ball bearing factories possibly, but not much. But it did disrupt any uh, further attempts at, at resistance. So um, in that case, in that sense, there were probably more people who would have joined in some kind of a wider resistance movement. But at that point, bombs were raining on them, and there's not much you can do. You know, you couldn't have gone out on the streets every Monday night safely in Leipzig at that point. Certainly not in Dresden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was firebombed, uh, or Hamburg, for that matter. So I, I want to set that record straight on the, on the excommunication. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite important to put excommunication in, in, in quotation marks. Yeah, that's an important point. Uh, eventually, uh, we, we've told a bit of the story of, of Karl Heinz Schnibbe and uh, Rudi Volba. Uh, but uh, the leader of the group, Helmut Hubner, eventually was sentenced to death, and interestingly was was executed by guillotine. I didn't know yeah. the Nazi yeah, regime used know, this. People didn't know about that very much, but it, they did happen to have a guillotine at that spot. My wife and I were, Linda and I were, invited last fall because it was the 70th anniversary of his beheading on the 27th of October, 1942, and we were we participated in a wreath laying ceremony there at the uh, prison just at Plötzensee on sort of in the outskirts of Berlin where he was executed, and the place is still there. Uh, I found a couple of really remarkable documents in a in a in, in what was called the Institute for Marxism and Leninism in East Berlin when it still existed. And these are pieces of boilerplate that the uh, regime had pre-printed uh, with spots in there where you could write in the name and the time and so forth. And these documents... Uh, in in our book here are, are, are document numbers uh, 60, 61, and 62. Um, the, they say things like, uh, at this, uh, we, the undersigned officials of the attorney general, went to Plötzensee Prison today, the 27th of October, at about 1.05 p.m. We sought out in his cell the individual condemned to death, and there's a space, and they'd written in the name Helmut Hubner. And the leader of our team declared to the condemned, who was guarded by two prison officers, uh, that he was going to be excommunicated that night at, after t- uh, 8 executed. o'clock. Executed. Mm-hmm. Executed, yeah. yeah. Did I say execute? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, recommended he prepare himself for his final hour, and they pointed out that he could direct his final requests, if any, to the prison officials. So we have this boilerplate document. Then, right after that, we write, uh, we include in our, our, our uh, book here uh, the letter from Helmut Hubner. He wrote three letters. To one to his mother and, dad, and 
his, he, was, he didn't like his stepfather, Hubener. By the way, his name wasn't ever Hubener until just a few weeks before his arrest. So ironically, he, his mother married this guy and the guy adopted him. But he wrote one to his grandparents. Both those letters were destroyed in the, in the great firestorm and the bombing raid on Hamburg. But he wrote one to Sister Maria Zomerfeld. And she was another person who had emigrated to Utah. And I interviewed her. She lived on South Temple. And she'd kept the the, the letter. Actually, she'd lost the paper copy of it, but she said it's engraven on my heart, and I wrote it down again after I'd lost it. And it says, Dear Sister Zomerfeld and family, when you receive this letter, I will be dead. But before my execution, I have been granted one wish to write three letters to my loved ones. And then he goes on to say that he he's very thankful to my Heavenly Father that this agonizing life is coming to an end this evening. I could not stand it any longer. Anyway, my Father in heaven knows that I have done nothing wrong. I am only sorry that in my last hour I have to break the word of wisdom. Evidently, they were going to give him some schnapps to dull his senses. I know that God lives and he will be the proper judge of this matter until our happy reunion. In that better world, I remain your friend and brother in the gospel. Helmut, so that's a very touching letter. And then there's this other piece of boilerplate that, that happens at uh, 8 o'clock that night. They go into the cell. They take him down to the director of executions, uh, at 8.13 p.m., the condemned man appeared with his hand shackled behind his back. Two prison guards escorted him into the room, locking the door behind them. Um, they identified the guy, made sure it was the same one, with his shirt. And it says the prisoner showed no resistance when he was placed before the guillotine. They laid him down on his stomach. Now, this is all pre-printed, though, so we don't know if he actually resisted or not. But uh, uh, with his shirt removed, he was placed upon the apparatus, and the executioner removed the head from the body of the condemned man with the guillotine. And this is, this is gruesome now, he says. He then reported the sentence carried out. The procedure took 10 seconds from the time the condemned entered the room until he was turned over to the executioner and eight seconds from when he was turned over to the executioner until the executioner reported that the sentence had been carried out. I don't know if they were doing some kind of macabre uh, time and motion you know, study to see how efficient, how many people can you kill in a, in a 24-hour period or what, but... That was that was that gives you a, a sense of Nazism if you've never yeah. been encountered Nazis before. That that enough that would be enough right there to give you a sense for, for yeah. their uh, the effic- efficiency, yeah, and, efficiency and, 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 and absolute yeah, cruelty of cruelty. Uh, and uh, um, Helmut Hubner at his at his trial, the, the verdict was passed. Uh, he said something like, "I have to die for no crime at all." He's he's that's right. He is uh, firm in his convictions to the to the very end. Yeah, he, he could see that he was doomed, and and that, you know being nice and asking for mercy was not was not going to get him anywhere. So he boldly stood up, and and when they when they said, "Do any of you have any questions?" Carl and Rudy said, "No," but he stood up and said, "Look, you're you're uh, judging me here, and and you're going to execute me, for, but I haven't committed any kind of crime at all." Mm-hmm. But he said, "But you wait," and, and he said this to these judges in their blood red robes up there. Uh, the highest Nazi tribunal in Germany. You wait, he said, your turn will come. Earlier in the trial, they had asked him, they said, do you, did you really believe when you wrote this junk that, uh, that Germany would lose the war? And he said, absolutely, don't you believe it? And uh, so he was, you know, he was, a, he was a smart aleck in that sense, but I think it, it, it took enormous courage. But I think he knew that he was doomed and that he wanted to go out with a, you know, with his conscience clear and his and his um, his, his conscience intact, and, and he didn't want to uh, try to beg for clemency or whatever. There was a plea for clemency handed in, ironically, by the Hitler Youth themselves, because they thought this doesn't make us look very good. You know, to have the Führer um, killing this seventeen-year-old kid uh, who was a Hitler, who had been a member of the Hitler Youth, so they actually put in a plea for clemency, but it was denied. Hmm. Let's hear another clip from the from the film of Truth and Conviction. Uh, here's a passage with uh, Carl Schnibbe telling what happened to, to him a little bit uh, after. And I came home in '49. Uh, one Saturday, my mom said, uh, "Tomorrow we go in the organ concert." And there they played Cesar Frank, love it, Mendelssohn, beautiful. I mean, all the Jewish composers they were for, forbidden in Hitler Germany. And then it happened, right during the concert, I broke down, I started crying, and I cried and I cried. After that, the healing started very fast, you know. It was a long, long, hard road, but I made it. I don't think young people today can really understand what it was like in Nazi Germany. People were forced to make difficult decisions based on what information they had. 
For many of us, it was the time when patriotism and faith were at odds. It was a time when truth was treason. Helmut spoke for freedom in the best way he knew how. I don't regret what we did, but I don't blame those who didn't agree with our actions. I guess I feel what Helmut said is true. God will be the proper judge of this matter. That's Carl Stimme. He was part of the Hubner Group, along with Helmut Hubner and Rudy Volva. They, they confronted, resisted the Nazi regime. Um, Helmut Hubner was executed. So Carl Stimme and Rudy Volba ended up in the United States. Yes. And uh, I think uh, that uh, Helmut Hubner's, a lot of his family... His, uh, his two half-brothers who survived yeah. the war uh, came here as well. Um, and eventually... The, the remaining members of the group, Karl Schneber and Rudi Volvo, were, and of course, all the, the group was, was honored uh, back in Germany. And yes, uh, on many occasions, actually. The uh, city of Hamburg particularly was uh, good to them. Uh, um, I, I was invited one of those occasions on, on the, um, in 1985. It was on the occasion of Helmut's, uh, what would have been Helmut's 60th birthday. And uh, they treated us very kindly, took us to all of those sites, uh, it was a particularly cold winter, I remember, but they took us around to all these sites where they had been imprisoned. Finally, with uh, Professor Keel, I, I wonder, I'm, I don't know if you ever had occasion to have uh, Rudy Volba or Carl Schnibbe talk to students. But if you didn't, maybe imagining this. What, Very often, what, in fact. What, 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 what did they say? What, what, was, what were they anxious to pass on to the next generation from their experiences? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, we had them speak as often as we could. I, I had Carl come down a lot, and I always had to bribe him with pizza from the brick oven. That's what it was his favorite thing. Extra crispy, he said. But what they always, of course, they would tell their story, but what they said to the young, young students, and the students were, were resonated to this, you could see that, was, look, we don't know what your life's going to bring. We don't know what kind of political situation you're going to be in, uh, but please be well-informed and, and be... Um, be engaged. Don't be in, don't be afraid because your vote really counts. It's an irony that, of of higher education that that our students are so busy doing their homework and stuff that they don't do much with with current events. I gave a lecture at BYU recently, and I and I asked them, polled them a little bit. I said, How many of you know this? How many know that? none of them knew anything because they hadn't been paying attention to current events, and so they would. Uh, Carl and Rudy would always say, "Pay attention. Read the newspaper. Listen to television. But don't just go to the sources that you know agree with you." And uh, go to the no spin zone or something. You go go somewhere where they're, where you really get the facts, and then become engaged and become involved. Because democracy, the democratic system, really is a fragile thing. It depends on us being educated, and informed, and willing to step forward and and fight for a good cause. Um, so they really, uh, Carl Carl came to the United States and uh, said he looked around at the time in the fifties and he said, "Oh my gosh." This is just like Germany, only the Jews here are black, and we're treating them just like the German Nazis treated these black or these these Jews. So he became a real exponent of racial uh, equality. Carl did, and he invo- invited the students to look around for analogies, and say, you know, look around. Is there somebody in your school who's being mistreated? It's odd, but the Helmut Hubner story has become a a really big rallying thing in Germany against bullying, what the Germans call mobbing. And there's a, a Helmut Hubner school in Hamburg that has now, um, uh, it's interesting, the, the word Helmut contains the word M-U-T, which means courage, and the word Hubner contains the word Üben, which means to uh, practice. And so they print this Helmut with the Moot in bold type and the Hubner with the Üben in bold type, which means practice courage. And they have this contest at this school, who can be the most courageous in practicing courage uh, in, 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 in inventive and imaginative ways. And a lot of it's aimed at bullying, anti-bullying campaigns, and standing up for, uh, you know, downtrodden minorities. And if you see somebody being mistreated. Um, so this comes out in a lot of really interesting ways. It comes out in uh, anti-homophobic um, initiatives in Germany. And um, so it was clear to me that Carl and Rudy wanted these uh, kids to think broader you know, don't just wait around till somebody like Hitler comes along, and then you can stand up. Like you know, you're not going to be able to repeat exactly what Hubner did. Your situation is going to be different. Wherever this comes up, um, 
the humaner thing to do is to get the truth and then be courageous about speaking it and but but also nonviolent. And I think it's very important and I'm glad I got the chance to say that at the very end here. The thing that differentiates the Hubner group from, let's say, the uh, uh, Stauffenberg conspiracy, which I fully, I, I certainly do not condemn. I, I fully appreciate what they what they tried to do. Uh, I regret that, in fact, the, some of the Stauffenberg conspirators were were executed in the very room, the same room, in at Plitzensee. They were hanged on piano wire, and the little hooks are still there on the beam that they installed just for that. And the, this was filmed so Hitler could see his enemies strangle themselves to death. Uh, but it, it's somehow a, a, a much more noble thing to, uh, as we've learned from Martin Luther King and from uh, Gandhi and others, that to, to approach these things in a nonviolent way. Uh, violence would not have brought down, violence from within would not have brought down the Nazi regime. Violence from within would certainly not have brought down the East German regime. regime. They have lots more machine guns. The point is that it's truth and boldness of action that is nonviolent in nature that that has the potential to bring down these regimes. We have been talking about the Hubner Group, a group of Mormon teenagers who confronted the Nazi regime in the early 1940s. Uh, and uh, Alan Keel is a... Uh, Emeritus Professor of German Studies at Brigham Young University. And you can find out more in uh, uh, Professor Keel's books, several books written on the subject, one of which is uh, When Truth Was Treason. And there's a movie, a documentary film on the subject called Truth and Conviction, directed by uh, Matt Whitaker. Professor Keel, thanks so much. It's been my pleasure, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Hi, this is Mark Larez Casanova from the Utah Master Naturalist Program at Utah State University Extension. The onset of springtime brings nesting birds in abundance. In the past week alone, blackbirds have been defending their territories in the marshes, goslings can be seen trailing behind their parents, and swallows are swooping and perching near their nests. One bird that is impossible to ignore is the killdeer. Its call is loud and easily recognizable. It's no coincidence that its scientific name is Caradrius vociferus. Killdeer are a type of plover, similar to the snowy plovers that nest along the shores of Great Salt Lake. The killdeer, however, is well at home in dry upland habitats. The most peculiar characteristic of killdeer is that they are often seen and heard in the most unlikely of places. Dirt roads, parking lots, or even construction sites. Killdeer nest on open ground, digging just a shallow scrape in the soil. Gravel roads are often ideal nesting habitat because killdeer eggs blend in well with nearby pebbles. The spotted eggs and young hatchlings are very cryptic and visible to the eye even when they are underfoot. This dangerous breeding strategy can often lead to trampled nests. Or, if a predator has a good sense of smell, the eggs and young are easily eaten. Although, the killdeer has a trick up its sleeve. Well, its wing. When a predator such as a fox approaches the nest, the adult killdeer feigns a broken wing while walking away from its nest. This draws the attention of the predator, which thinks it's found an easy meal, away toward the adult. Once it's led the threat far enough from the nest, the adult killdeer takes off in flight, taunting the predator with its call. It's very hard to see a killdeer nest even when it's obvious the adults are near it. Keep in mind, though, that time spent looking for a killdeer nest is time that the adults are not tending to the eggs or hatchlings, which puts their survival at risk. A bird that lives so dangerously can use all the help it can get. For Wild About Utah, I'm Mark Larez Casanova.
Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.